This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ. James, another week and we're back for another inspiring conversation here on Cyclist Magazine podcast. Indeed, well, you say, you say that with a wry grin on your face as if these aren't inspiring conversations. The interview we have coming up with Charlotte Worthington, who is Britain's first ever gold medalist in uh, BMX freestyle. That is inspiring. Uh, you and I, Anthony, we just about kind of make the grade for being vaguely interesting. So without you know further ado, I just want to get into what's making, you know, what's, what's grinding your gears this week and what has tickled your fancy and made you think like, I, would, I want to get out of bed this morning. I researched a lot last night on Charlotte for this podcast and, you know, equality and male domination within sports is very topical, but I couldn't believe how big the problem is inside BMX. And I'm not sure, it's like 90% male dominated from one of the articles I read, which is, it's pretty out there, even for road cycling, which is a you know typically male-dominated sport. I don't know how you start to address that, but performances like Charlotte's at uh, games, obviously, is a beginning, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on how you start unpacking and fixing it. I mean, yeah, there there is the kind of work, there is the zeitgeist can of worms that kind of plagues all of cycling. I always, the first, first things first, I think you just have to get parity in prize money. That is, that's just a given. And I don't know what BMX is like, but we know from road cycling that uh, I think like last year, you got a prize pot of 2.2 million uh, euros for the men's Tour de France and the women's Tour de France um, was 250,000 euros. So that's like an eighth, which is pretty criminal. And I don't care what anyone says about, oh, well, you know, the men's race is longer. It doesn't matter. Like you've got to close the gap much more than that. And the same, and they did it, they've, they've made a better fist of it this year or you know, year just gone with Roubaix, but the first women's Roubaix. Um, do you know how much they got? Do you know what the prize purse was for first place women's Roubaix? Oh. It was 1,535 euros for, for Lizzie <laughs> Dagan. Can you imagine, like, 1,500 euros? And the bloke's got 30,000, which is not which is actually weirdly low, but, I would, you know, you kind of think for the, such a marquee event, it might be more. But anyway, point being, that is insane, and it has been um, slightly redressed. And that year... Uh, to Trex Credit, which is uh, Lizzie's sponsors, they topped her up to €30,000 um, for winning Paris Bay. So I think that's a good starting point because also that sort of thing grabs headlines. I'm talking about it now. And it sends out a message, doesn't it? It sends out a message saying, we believe, the organisers believe that there is there should be parity. There is like these things should, should occupy equal space in their sphere of sport. So... Yeah, money, money first off. There's like a weird barrier, I feel, to get into BMX. I'm interested to hear Charlotte's thoughts on it. But like to start BMXing, it seems like you're rocking up to your local park skate club with a BMX. Like that's pretty intimidating for a lad to do. Like it almost feels vaguely antisocial. Like I'm thinking when I was over for the roller event a few weeks ago in London, I walked past some skate parks and... I don't know if I would have been rocking up there in my BMX saying, all right, guys, can I be part of the gang? That's, it feels intimidating. And I think doubly so for girls to approach a male-dominated group and ask, hey, guys, can I be part of the group? That's hard. That is, yeah, that is definitely true. And there is a sort of, there's an attitude, a specific, like deliberate kind of um, anti-establishment, almost kind of aggressive attitude, I think, um, in kind of like street sports, like skateboarding, BMXing, whatever. And I say this based on... Uh, 
my memories, my hazy memories as a youth, um, doing a bit of skating and a bit of BMXing, um, and feeling, you know, feeling that kind of feeling scared, like you said, feeling scared. And I, you know, Port, I'm from Portsmouth. Portsmouth had, uh, the biggest concrete skate park in Europe for a long time. So I had some good skaters down there, uh, and they were both inspiring and really freaking scary in equal measure. I remember this one kid, so this is inline, aggressive inline skating, right? And he was, we were probably like 12, and he must have been, I don't know, 18 or something. So he's like a man, he's like this giant, and he's called Worm. And can you imagine a guy <laughs> with red, these massive red oxygen argon skates, which were the popular skates, called Worm with his long hairs, like, and he'd like land a trick, and everyone would just be like, whoa, it's amazing. Or he wouldn't, and you'd be stood at the top of the ramp watching, and he'd right, and he'd come up to the, like the end of the ramp, so like slither like, over to you, slither over, and then just like smash it really hard with his fist, and just like start scream, like being really angry that he didn't. And you'd be like, "Oh shit! I just, uh, I'm sorry, Mister Worm. I don't mean to be in your way." So there is, but within that, I always saw it as like way more inclusive than any other sport that I used to do. Like way more inclusive than football because you just had to be really good at football to be part of football. As I grew older, way more inclusive than actual road cycling because it's such a blokey thing. It was, I actually thought it was the opposite. I thought it was quite, quite an approachable sport, I've got to say. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Different, different strokes, different folks. Yeah. So we were chatting off air a little bit about the Cyclist Magazine Christmas party. And I feel there might be alcohol and a BMX skate park involved in your organization of this year's Christmas party. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. I'm excited for what happens when I break my arm and I can't type. So that'll be fun. You should never, yeah. I've, I, I don't know. That's a whole other podcast about me having seen various co workers get things like skateboards or BMXs and really, really hurt themselves. Uh, at work dues so we'll leave it there for now without further ado ladies and gentlemen uh, we're going to move into our interview with uh, she's got an MBE as well um, Charlotte Worthington so Charlotte welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast Um, for anyone that hasn't heard of you A they bloody well should have done by now and B Charlotte Worthington ladies and gents, um, at the tender age of, I'm going to say it was 25, right? Because Tokyo 2020 Olympics was actually Tokyo 2021. Tender age of 25, you became the first British woman in the world, the first woman in the world to win a gold medal at the Freestyle BMX, um, which is an incredible achievement, but also the first person in the world to land uh, a 360 backflip in competition which is pretty awesome as well. And a lot of that will mean nothing to anyone listening to this because traditionally <laughs> we're a road cycling podcast. So, <laughs> so we might have to do like a little bit of kind of like background um, around, yeah, freestyle BMX and also, you know, obviously what kind of brought you um, to this place. But yeah, just to kind of kick off, could you explain to anyone that hasn't ridden around on a BMX at some point in their life what freestyle BMX is? Yeah, absolutely. That was some introduction. Thank you, James. Uh, and thank you for having me, Anthony and James, on the podcast. Um, what I do is BMX freestyle. And for anyone that doesn't know, the best way to picture it is probably think gymnastics on a bike. Uh, so our bikes are 20-inch wheels, so they're quite small and nippy. Um, we use them to go up and down ramps, catching airtime. Uh, and when we're in the air, we'll be either spinning ourselves with the bike or the bike around us some way, shape or form, and hopefully landing rubber side down. 
Charlotte, what does training look like for this? Because I know for most of us going out for a road ride and I'm kind of transitioning from road to off-road a little bit at the moment and riding some gravel and now starting to dip my toe into mountain bike. And I'm finding it's almost the cost of entry is crashing a little bit as you start because you're pushing that limit of what's comfortable, trying to do more jumps, kind of gnarlier sections. Are you just on the ground nonstop in training, getting ready for this stuff? <laughs> it kind of depends uh what what part of training we're at um you don't really want to be on the ground non-stop you're probably not getting set up very well for a competition there um but i like that you're transitioning to gravel riding anthony that's very very trendy of you yeah thanks <laughs> can't say i've dabbled with it myself i've done it i've done quite a few road rides um touch what i haven't crashed yet uh, i've had some close calls uh, but yeah, BMX is absolutely like any extreme sport. You've got to pay your dues, you've got to pay to play, um, and that will involve crashing. But the only good thing about that is you learn how to crash. You learn how to crash safely, whether it's like a bit of a, a tuck and roll or what parts of your body are a little bit more padded than the others. Um, yeah, so it's a, a big part of it is crashing, and that's also um, a big challenge that you overcome, such as things when you learn to ride a bike like with Halfords. But with something like smashing, uh, yeah, a three a three sixty flip, right? If you're practicing the piano, you can break down that piece into sections, and you can practice just the sections that you you know find most challenging. Whereas any trick in BMX, you just got to start it from the beginning. I'm guessing. So, how many times do you not land something versus land it? And once you've basically landed it, is it nailed and kind of under your belt, and you can just pull it out your locker? almost at will or is it a kind of case of yeah i'm going to have to go through another 50 <laughs> didn't like 50 stacks before i land that trick again yeah i mean if if you look at the numbers of of how many you land versus how many you don't land in the in the learning stage of it they'll be very outweighed you might land like one in a hundred and then it'll be like five and a hundred but it, like they'll even out and then eventually it'll be you know you'll be more on the landing side 80 out of 100 um not that i'll ever be doing 100 360 flips um in a session but yes yeah, it's, it's not something that you can click your fingers at um i think with any trick on on bmx really uh it's very fitting that this is a mental health podcast because so much of it is mental i'd say 90 percent of the sport is mental when you're doing it regularly uh, some days you can just show up and it's like you've never ridden a bike before and you're just totally off, your balance is off and you lose confidence in being able to send your scariest tricks. And then there's other days where you, you show up and everything clicks and you feel kind of invincible and you're like, oh my gosh, why is it not this easy every day? That's just the waves of being a, an athlete. It's the waves of, of BMX and any technical extreme sport. Um, it's not a simple case of, you know, gym plus weight equals fastest time or highest air uh so yeah huge amounts of it is mental and, and when we're learning tricks we'll start in the foam pit um you can try and break it down but if you aren't really like 100 percent committed it's probably going to be a bit more harder work and painful whether it's physical or mental like uh to, to get it done over and over yeah charlotte you touched on the mental side of it and your olympic gold medal run you went out the first time and you tried the 360 degree backflip and it didn't work. And then you have a window between number run number one and run number two, where I assume you're back in the dressing room and just chilling out. Like how much of a mental game is that 30 minute period between 
run one and run two? Do you have like a process you go through to reground yourself, to visualize success, to sort of banish thoughts of previous failure or what happens in that period? Um, that period was a, a little bit exceptional at the games. It's not usually 30 minutes between runs. Um, however, the way the games finals was laid out, it was because you had to wait for everyone to go before you. Um, so we kind of prepared for that. And yeah, I definitely had a few techniques of, of staying present, um, of like reminding myself of kind of the right things to focus on and, it was, it was a very interesting experience, the, the 25, 30 minutes between. Because as I say, usually you have like six minutes between your runs, whereas this was a, a long time period. And I think after my first run, I felt a mixture of, at first I felt relief that I'd, I'd tried it. I'd put this new thing out to the world, on the world stage. There was a lot of anticipation from myself, my teammates, from my competitors as to whether I would try it or not. Because sometimes fear can get the better of you and you can like freeze. Um, so I was like, I've got it. I've sent it. I've tried it. I've crashed. So what? Like the world's seen it and I've, it's not over till it's over. And then like five seconds after the run, I was like, oh, now I feel kind of angry that I put myself out there and I didn't land it when I know I could have landed it. And I know I made this mistake and it was like this really cool mental place to be in of, of mixed emotions of like, well, I'm super calm and relieved a weight off my shoulders that I've tried it. And like, I've done my first run ever at the Olympics. Um, but now I feel super determined and focused to, to be able to make the adjustments in the next run, um, and try and get the whole run out there. Do you have anyone kind of like with you in your corner sort of thing? So when you're going back to that locker room or back to behind the fence and watching other competitors, do you have people there and, if, if so, what are those kind of conversations? Or if not, what kind of conversations are you playing out in your head maybe that you would have had with coaches for this very instance to kind of get you through? Uh, me personally, I don't have a huge amount of people in my corner. Um, I like to be like a little bit in my own world. So I'll only have a small handful. Um, but for me at the games, my right-hand man was my coach, Jamie Beswick. He just knows how to be around me. He can just stand there like just next to me. He doesn't have to say anything. I don't have to say anything. I've probably got my headphones in. Um, and a lot of what I did in that that time between runs was a lot of visualizing, um, going over the run, how to do the, each trick in my head and, and which cue to do that. So he's kind of almost guarding me really versus letting someone come up to me and start chatting or whatever, because that can seriously throw, throw your guard off. So He's definitely my right-hand man. And then there's, there's a couple of guys on the team that I like to have around me that are super calming. And it's just, that's kind of figuring out what works best for you. Like some people need amping up. Some people need like the hype. They're like, you got it, you got it, you can do it, let's go. And I'm a bit more, I like things to be kind of calm and I'll probably be hyping myself up too much. I need someone to like bring me down and say like, you got it, like you, you're good. Just do what you do every day in training. Um, so that's kind of, my my situation. I'm kind of taking tips from my golf game here. If I'm on the first tee box and I go left, it's like second tee box, all I'm thinking for, it's walk up to the second tee box is don't go left, 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 and then I go right. <laughs> it's like, it's not good. Uh, but I'm wondering, is this the key to it? It's, it's visualizing that just straight down the fairway. Absolutely. Visualizing is a fantastic tool. Um, and it's it's a skill. Your brain is a muscle. Um, it gets a lot better with 
with uh, practice. So yeah, if you I like visualize and I do it all the time, whether it's tricks, sometimes you get up there and we you know we've discussed it's a scary sport and you, you feel like you're trying something for the first time. But if you visualize it again and again, going right, it's almost like a comfort blanket as well of, no, I know like how this is going to feel and how it's going to look because I've gone over it again and again in my head. And it's a bit different to like being stuck thinking of and worrying about something over and over again. I think if you find yourself doing that, then it's like catch yourself, you're thinking negative or like you're worrying about the worst outcome and almost practice visualizing the best outcome because that's difficult and a, a skill in itself. That's a huge skill that I, I use. Does that skill kind of give you any other superpowers elsewhere in life? Because I know that from a roadside of things, I've come across this visualization thing before. Mark Cavendish, you know, will, will not only, he will, you know, look at finishes, race finishes, um, and work out obviously where all the different bits of road furniture and where people might position themselves might be and have a kind of mental plan, but also has an almost photographic memory and can kind of like look back and be able to describe a sprint in those you know, last incredibly frenetic seconds. But apparently that also means he's really good at Sudoku. So is there something else? You know, do you manage to become a better person in the rest of your life because you can do these things in BMX? I mean, I'd like to think I'm pretty quick at Sudoku. I've not quite <laughs> got the expert yet, but the hard's been getting bashed on the phone. Um, Visualisation is definitely a, a transferable skill. It, I mean, I basically use it mainly for sport, um, but there's if you're looking at transferable skills, there's immense transferable skills. And it's more life lessons of being able to get up after being knocked down, being able to know that things take more than one go sometimes. Some things come naturally better than others. And I definitely like to think that BMX does make me a better person. And it's the lessons that I've learned about myself, um, about things that I'm scared of or your instant reactions if you're in like not the best place like my instant reaction might be to to go super internal and not open up and then you get in this kind of you get stuck in that rut so when you learn about those things um you can then see when that happens in your everyday life whether it's a tough conversation with your partner and you're scared you're holding it in and then you start to realize there's other things that you do that it just piles on and whatever it is for you like yeah you can definitely transfer things and and I've had a lot of help in doing that like I've not just magically found it um I've had a lot of guidance from as I mentioned my coach Jamie his wife Kerry um has been a huge influence in in guiding my professional career and I've also seen the importance especially this year of not just being the best athlete that you can be but being the best person and being an athlete you're it's an extremely selfish career. All you do is kind of make sure that you're the best. What's going to put you in best form? What do you need to be ready for the next day? And there's actually so many people around you that that help you in doing that. Um, often it makes you a better athlete when you can sort of focus on that a little bit outside world and and look after your environment and you, your support team a lot more. So yeah, BMX has definitely made me into a better person through guidance and relationships. I often wonder, like, do top athletes like yourself not give themselves enough credit? And it's almost a little bit of the nature versus nurture debate. Like, is there something within you that makes you able to go and pull off the 360 backflip on run two after ditching it on run one, rather than these tools or techniques? Because these tools, 
they suffer massively from survivorship bias. Like, assumably the person that went out and tried the 360-degree backflip and binned it the second time, they also visualized success. So it's not visualization that's really the key differentiator. It's more something innate in you. I mean, I can't tell you what's what's in me. Uh, you're right. These things don't work every time. Uh, if you were to look at my competitive history this year in 2022, it's been in the friggin' dumpster. <laughs> like we've had, I had like the year of my life in, in 2021. Um, it was really good. And COVID was like a total spanner in the works, but we worked it really well. And then this year, like a lot has changed for me. I've obviously had like the same techniques, but you know, I haven't been clicking out on course every time. I've had a couple wins uh, and I've had quite a few crashes. Um, so I'm still learning and I'm not like Wonder Woman. I can't just go in and win every contest that that I want. Um, and I think it's just proven in history over and over that it's, you know, pe- people fail and they fail to succeed, which is, you know, something Michael Jordan said. Um, and yeah, I, I don't have the answer if there's, if there's something in me, but, you know, there's a bunch of techniques that, and guidance that have helped me. I read a lot of books. Um, and sometimes they help you in a short moment, like something might help me for one contest and I'm like, that was great. And then it might really not work for something else depending on the environment. So it's just, I think it's best to try as many different skills and, and approaches and perspectives massively that you can. Um, and then I think the learning process is where do you apply them? Like, okay, I'm in a situation where, I didn't get a good night's sleep before and I feel pretty rough. Like what's going to work best for me now is probably not visualization because I'm mentally really fatigued. So maybe it's something else. That's the only answer I kind of have to that. And uh, if I, th- I find if I get on a bit of a roll where I'm thinking I'm kind of invincible and I got this, I got every, got like every contest that I enter, I'll, I'll be brought back down to earth pretty quick. So BMX isn't a sure thing and it's just the, the ways of being an athlete. Yeah, uh, and probably brought back down to earth with quite a lot of physical pain, <laughs> potentially. But yeah, touching upon there, you know, lots of lots of skills that again I would associate with lots of other areas of cycling. Having cycling over the last ten years in the UK, at least, having become incredibly professionalised and meticulously planned in a way that like tennis or football was way before that, but obviously the National Lottery Funding, British Cycling got involved with cycling. Suddenly we had cyclists in this country who are really good. And it's like, what's the secret? And it's like, well, mate, we never shake hands. We take our own pillows places. So I'm assuming just to kind of bring it back to, you know, where you were at and how you came into BMX in your, when you, in your late teens, so 18, 19, you would have had a very different approach to sport then, I guess, or to BMXing then compared to now. So what's been that kind of British cycling style involvement, that Olympic program involvement. And did you ever kind of regret having to sort of professionalize what you do in that kind of way? Um, yeah, I'm definitely like new school. Absolutely. <laughs> my age would say otherwise. My age might say like a, l- a little older, but yeah, I didn't get into BMX until I was 19 or 20. Um, I, I got into it through... A love of extreme sports. I used to ride stunt scooters, which is an extremely similar skill. Um, and I'd like to think I got my like unprofessional, like kind of crazy days out of the way with that. And then I was starting at like a, a real job essentially of a full-time work in a kitchen. 
and struggling to find the time to to ride and progress on my scooter, um, falling out of love with it a little bit. I was getting a little older and like the environment was changing and I wanted something new, but was still like within the realms of extreme sports. Like I always did a bit of skateboarding, a bit of rollerblading, anything with wheels. I loved it. Um, so I knew I could kind of already ride a bike and I, I had one that I played with every now and then. So I picked up a bike. I had a year of it being just like a total hobby and just something that I loved. Um, and after that year, I said yes to a couple opportunities that just led me down this Olympic path and it absolutely snowballed. It went from just going to a festival to being on a TV show to then bumping into someone that just said, you know, the Olympics is coming. Um, they've decided freestyles in it and they're looking to do a team. We think you'd be great. Do you want to try out? And I'm just 20 years old thinking, well, why wouldn't I want to try out like 2021? You know, worst case scenario, I get a free trip to America with my bike and and that's the end of it. Like that was a selection camp. Um, but that's not the, that wasn't the case and it just snowballed. But I don't know, I, I really like the way that it is now. Um, I'm not much of a, a party goer, but BMX simply seven years ago, maybe, you know, it was kind of a party sport. It wasn't necessarily everyone that was athletes. Um, most people didn't take it that seriously. It was pretty unprofessional and unregulated and it was a good time. It was a great time. And that's, you know, BMX, it's a lifestyle sport. Um, and it's so fun. And that's, that side of the sport is still there. Like it's a choice whether you, you compete or not. Um, and there still has to be an essence of that when we're riding, like, Sometimes when you turn it into training, it gets the better of you. And like, I mean, me, myself, this week, Monday, Tuesday, I was feeling pretty burnt out. And I was just like, man, I can't focus this hard on ticking off the checklist of of my tricks. Like, you know what? I just got to let that go for a session and just go have fun on my bike because that's what it all started as. And it's a creative sport. It's a lifestyle sport. So as long as you can express yourself and still enjoy it, that's super important. And that's what makes it such an enjoyable sport to be a part of because it's very social. Um, it's got a great community. Um, yeah, and it's definitely transformed my life for the better with with many people. What is that uh, you talked about, it having this sort of countercultural aspect to it? There's a few sports when you mention that, I think of them straight away, I think of... BMX, skateboarding, snowboarding, and maybe to a lesser extent, gravel cycling. And in gravel, they call it like the spirit of gravel, this kind of nebulous concept. What is it? What is that common denominator for people that haven't experienced it? Can you kind of verbalize what it is? Um, I think I'd say it's pure passion. It's doing something for the sake of doing it because you love it and you love who you do it with. And you love what you get out of it. And it doesn't matter if you get a first place or a last place. All that matters is that you've tried super hard again and again at a trick, for instance, and then you finally pull it and you've got all your mates around you to celebrate it with you. And I think it must be the same with gravel riding. It's getting to the end of the segment and then having a good time after with your mates cracking a beer open. That's kind of where, where BMX and yeah, a lot of other extreme sports originate from. Um, so it is kind of a fine line of, of the balance between keeping it fun and, and getting into training. But ultimately, I think whenever you're having the most fun on the bike, you're probably doing the best training anyway. And how does that fun on the bike change between you doing a kind of like Olympic tour or, you know, something under the auspices of like British cycling 
versus because obviously you're you have you have other sponsors you do other competitions that aren't olympic competitions um so you're with snafu and hyper bikes is that right yeah my bike sponsors are, are hyper bmx and snafu bmx and i also ride for adidas so i'm guessing like particularly adidas you know i see this all the time in different sports like they do some amazing kind of like viral campaigns and other things that aren't just like kind of competition how do those things compare is it a bit more fun just like chucking a bike in the back of somebody's transit van and driving around i don't know south america and competing that way compared to having to do you know get on a special flight going to japan and you know go to bed at seven and wake up at <laughs> some allotted time i don't know it can be it, it kind of depends what your style is i mean i enjoy that from time to time like just bmx road trips is massively a thing like traveling around different skate parks meeting new people trying new ramps um and yeah there's there's the party contests where everyone's having a beer before finals not saying i'd ever do that but (laughs) like i enjoy the structure as well i i enjoy going to bed early and getting up early and like going to the gym making myself an athlete and then really maximum gaining what i can get out of the bike like i really enjoy that um i enjoy the fun party side of it as well but not not as much. So it's honestly personal preference. I mean, when the Olympics came about, it did divide the sport a little bit. We had a divide of the people that are super up for it and, you know, want to transform themselves into being professional athletes. And then there's the side that say it's ruining BMX and that it ruins the creativity, that you have to be a robot and copy everyone else. But in actual fact, the way contests are judged, it's completely not like the case anyway. Like you get scored higher for being more creative. So there, there is definitely a divide. And some people were competing regularly that dropped off because they didn't enjoy the way the contest changed, the way it became a lot more serious and structured. Um, so yeah, it's kind of personal preference, but we all like to live in harmony with, with one common denominator. You touched on the scoring there. How is it scored? So I see in your Olympic win, you did 97.50 score. How's that calculated? Um, it's based off of uh, a number of categories, which you'd be scored by, I think, four, four or five judges. And the categories are things such as uh, creativity, as I mentioned, height, speed, trick difficulty, use of course so whether you're using it a creative way or whether you're just using the basic backwards and forwards um and then those kind of individual scores from the categories then get accumulated into one score out of 100 and that's based off of your uh, 60 seconds time out there on the course and it's not like gymnastics you don't tell the judges in advance what you're going to do um so essentially you could make a mistake and then make it up on the fly uh, it doesn't tend to go well when i do that but um, yeah, you, you can plan a run or you cannot plan a run. But ultimately, yeah, it's, just, it's what come down, comes down on the 60 second. Has anyone got a perfect run, a 100 score? I think my coach Jamie might do, or he might have a 99.9, something ridiculously high. Um, he is the goat of BMX Vert and BMX in general. So I wouldn't be surprised. We hear about ketones in the pro peloton, but what are they? According to experts at HVMN, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. Studies show that ketones are 28% more efficient than glucose, making them a super efficient fuel source for your long rides and races. These benefits led HVMN to create Ketone IQ, which is a drinkable ketone designed to support energy, focus and endurance. It's developed alongside the US military 
And Ketone IQ is one of the most powerful ketone supplements on the market. It's designed to elevate your ketone levels for up to four hours, which is much longer than other products. Plus, it's caffeine-free, it's compliant with the World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines, and that's a major win for athletes. Ketone IQ shots are the best way to get your ketones on the go. What I love about them is they're portable and they fit so perfectly and neatly in my jersey pocket during a ride. So visit hvmn.com and use promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. And to learn more about achieving your ultimate metabolic potential, subscribe to HVMN's podcast, Health Via Modern Nutrition, which is hosted by Dr. Lat Mansour. That's on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. So visit hvmn.com and use the promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. A good friend once told me, you race on the road and you train on the turbo. But is the turbo training the best tool for the job these days? Well, the Watt Bike Adam is a dedicated smart bike to make indoor training more engaging and fun. And it's really convenient so you get the most out of your indoor miles. So there's no switching bikes, no wearing down bike components or slipping gears. The Atom is simply a plug-and-ride setup with all the data you need to get the most out of your training. It has a smaller footprint than a full turbo setup, so it fits in even the most compact spaces. The first Watt bike was developed alongside British Cycling and was a crucial tool for Team GB's success at the 2008 Olympics, helping to identify talent and quantify it with immense accuracy for training. And the Wattbike Atom Smart Bike builds on that original Wattbike platform to bring industry-leading accuracy and intelligent pedaling analysis and training, which combines to help riders develop not just power and stamina, but pedaling efficiency too. I love its real-world feel, right down to the Atom's proper-feeling gear shifters, plus I'm connected to my favourite training apps like Zwift, or just plug-and-play with Wattbike's free workout and training plan platform, the Wattbike Hub app. Claim £250 off the Watt Bike Atom now with code CYCLIST250. Apply at the checkout on wattbike.com or enter our competition to win a Watt Bike Atom. The link to enter is in our show notes. Is there um, a kind of, could you say you don't put your tricks out there to the judges like, yeah, like in gymnastics, that's like, well, I'm skating, I'm going to nail X, Y, and Z. But you, I think you referenced it earlier that you know people kind of knew that you were going to do a big trick. They knew that you're going to try and nail a 360 backflip, right? And I remember from you know back in the days when I was sort of into skateboarding, BMXing, people like Matt Hoffman or Tony Hawk, they'd be, it'd be like this X Games. Matt Hoffman's going to pull a 900. It's going to be the first one in competition, and it's kind of out there. It sounds like that was the case for you, but is there? Does it then become like this strange arms race between your competitors where you hear that somebody's going to do something and so you have to make sure that you've got something in your locker that is better than that trick? Kind of. That's like in the preparation. I think people knew, the only people that knew about it was the people at the Olympics because I never posted that trick on Instagram or anything that I was working on. Um, I never did it in front of anyone really other than our small like training circle or it being in the UK um, if anyone filmed it, we actually said, please do not post that on social media. So it was this massive secret until the Olympics. So the only people that knew I was going to do it was my own team. And then when I tried it in the practice hours, because we had a couple of days practice on the course the week prior to the event, that's when the people at the Olympics knew that it could happen. Um, so to the rest of the world, it was like this huge, um, it was a huge secret, it was a huge surprise. 
Uh, so then it was the anticipation of the people at the games. Is there a kind of feeling with that, like the kind of natural extension of that, and I've heard this in other areas of extreme sports, that you are kind of being pushed beyond what is sort of kind of acceptable to a degree to do things that are potentially really quite dangerous. And I'm thinking of, particularly in snowboarding, I'm struggling to think of the name of the documentary, but a really moving documentary about a sponsored snowboarder um, who goes out and is just you know, practicing um, very specific, you know, big, big air tricks and breaks his back and effectively kind of gets dropped by the industry because no longer can that guy perform any, you know, do anything. Um, and working with this magazine, so Cyclist is also a magazine, right? And we do lots of photo shoots. Weirdly, there's quite a lot of photographers who come from BMX and moved into road biking, probably because the money was better. Um, and speaking to uh, one of the guys there, George Marshall, he, he has often said, he's pulled people back in photo shoots from doing something where they feel they need to do it because they need to get on the cover. They need to appease their sponsors. And he's just like, I'm not going to take your picture because I don't think it's safe for you to do this. But obviously it's kind of like, well, that's how you get paid. Is there that feeling in what you do? Not just for you, but also, you know, in, in your industry, do you feel that? There's definitely a little pressure, um, to push the boundaries of the sport. Uh, I was going to say just in the women's, but also in the men's. Um, that's just how the sport's evolving. It's not necessarily who's got the biggest, most dangerous trick that's on the edge. The sport's getting extremely consistent. Um, you see it a lot in the men's uh, this year. Um, people have got now the biggest, most dangerous tricks consistently, um, pretty dialed. And then they've got them back to back with other tricks that are super hard. So the game is like constantly being on the edge of doing your hardest, most dangerous, scary things, but you've got to be within reason enough and controlled enough to, to consistently pull it off in a run. So it's, uh, the way a contest works is you wouldn't want to have one massive trick and then nothing else. Like I couldn't have just done the 360 backflip and then rolled around the course because I probably would have not even made the podium um, you've got to have like a whole run and be consistent and confident enough with it. Um, I imagine for like a photo shoot, uh, then it's that then it is literally about one trick. You're doing one big trick, and yeah, I, I totally get it. Um, I think there's times where when that happens for us, it'll be in training of are we going to force? You know, is something really being forced to happen right now, and the environment's not quite right, and someone kind of pulls you aside and says, look, leave it for another day. It's not right today. You're super tired. Like it, it's really cold. The ramp's not right. Whatever it is. Um, so yeah, there's people there that look out for you and, and sometimes you just got to leave it for a better day. Uh, but I'd like to think that we try and calculate our safety as much as we can with foam pits and resi ramps, which have a little bit of give in the landing. Um, because as a long-term career, you know, we need to be able to look after our bodies and it's extremely dangerous beating down kind of sport. It would be pretty easy to just constantly get getting thrown to the ground. So yeah, we, we want to make the calculations to not get injured, to have a long career and to be able to pull something off in a minute run uh, versus like this one super hard extreme trick. You talked about one extreme moment, like uh, a photo, but I think about the Olympics and it's four years or in this case, a five-year build up to it. And then you get this blast of attention. You win your gold medal, you give welcome committee at the airport, you're straight on to this morning TV show. 
But then the volume goes down a little bit. Like there's this idea that the gold medal is a moment that fixes everything. But then your phone bill is still due. Your electric bill is still due. You know, you still have normal obligations. Is it hard to come from that version of reality back to normal life? I think I found it hard because I spent so much time off the bike. Uh, I spent two, three months off the bike right after the Olympics. Um, Like I was trying to say yes to every opportunity that I could get myself and BMX and my story out there um, to try and open doors to, to get sponsors, to get on the map, to build a profile. Um, and it's, it's a little bit of a trap. Like you, you can't stay relevant forever. I hate that word and that phrase within the, whatever you want to call it, celebrity community of, of relevance. Um, it's extremely degrading. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little hard when, you, you do think that you're kind of invincible. And as I say, this year has been such a change for me. It's been the opposite of last year. Last year, we had two contests. We had the World Championships and the Olympics, and that was it. And we had really strict training hours. We didn't have full access to the skate park. And then this year, I can't name the amount of countries that I've been to and contests that I've been to. It's been pretty relentless and nonstop. And I'm going to Australia in a week. Uh, the season's still not over. And it's been like this bumpy roller coaster. And that's because I've been trying to push the limits of the sport. And also, you know, you're just learning ways of being consistent and the struggles of being the Olympic champion and trying to ride at this next level and change the game. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a it's been a big change from the gold medal moment to now. Um, I wouldn't say it's solved all my problems, obviously. It hasn't. Um, it's taught me a lot uh, on both sides of the coin, really, on my personal and professional side of my personality. Do you have kind of like conversations with yeah, someone like Jamie afterwards saying, okay, right, you've just done this amazing thing and this is how you might feel <laughs> and and this is how you might have to kind of make yourself feel in the future to kind of keep pushing on? Because as Anthony said, that kind of like almost you've you've reached the zenith in some respects, I know you said there's a schism in BMX between people that want the kind of more professionalized Olympic style version um, and people who want to keep it a bit more, I don't know, for want of a better word, like organic or whatever. So for you to keep pushing forward, was that quite a process of visualization too, I guess? Because I'd almost want to kind of come home, put my feet up, wait for the after dinner speaking calls to come in and go and do some, <laughs> I don't know, whatever it is to, you know, to kind of like just cash in on that side of it. Because I'm guessing as well, you can't then carry on riding because what you need to do is make hay while that sun shines with all those media engagements. And that's the last thing you probably want to do because you probably want to go and ride your bike because that's why you're good at riding your bike. Um, surprisingly, that's not kind of how it, it came about. Like, yes, I took advantage of all the media opportunities. That's like what I prioritized. Um, for a minute, I, I couldn't look at my BMX because all I'd done for the last so many years, well, mainly because... COVID, the, the end the end year right before the games, the end of 2020, was probably my lowest point in in BMX. Like the COVID situation had affected me so bad. I, I lived on my own. Our training was crazy. We couldn't get into any gyms. I, I pretty much got like quite depressed. So I, like I was lucky enough to go out to America with my coach, um, which was a, a lot more, allowed a lot more freedom. And, you know, we kind of worked together with the team and, and got in a much better place. And then all we did 
before that, right before the games, was uh, I had a shoulder injury twice in 2021 before the Olympics. I broke my shoulder socket like in March, I think. And then I dislocated my shoulder again six weeks before the Olympics. So it kind of been extremely stressful getting to the games. And I loved every minute of it and every second of the challenge. And it made me face my fears and myself a lot. And then after the games, it was this huge relief. And I was just like, I can't look at my bike for like two months. I can't pick it up. But then it was amazing because when I did, it was when I wanted to. It wasn't just because I have to nail XYZ tricks this many times in a week. It was like, no, I really want to pick up my bike and go ride with my friends because I haven't done that in months. So that was kind of the situation. And given that my shoulder was in in bits, uh, after the I started riding again, it dislocated again. And I was like, well, I've got to get surgery. It's now or after Paris. So then I went into surgery. So it was another three months off the bike. So the start of this year, 2022, was three months of rehab getting back into the bike. Um, so it was a bit of a crazy journey, really. And yeah, there was it was just honestly a whirlwind. It's really interesting how we define success, because if you couple some of those things you talked about, like injury, the social isolation around COVID, the mental health issues, feeling a little bit depressed, it's like we see a finish line, like an Olympic gold medal or a Tour de France win as success. But that can't be our only metric of success as we try and inspire the next generations. Because if you take a young, wholesome athlete at 19 that comes into the sport and she wins an Olympic gold, but if you had to come out the far side of that experience, broken, bitter, not a good friend circle, not good mental health, even though you have that gold medal, like how do we step back and objectively say that's success? Because for me, that's not what success looks like. No, I absolutely agree. And when I reflect on on the Olympics, I often reflect way more than just the 60 seconds that made me an Olympic champion. I reflect on literally the the year or at least the kind of eight eight months before the Olympics that really defined me as a person. It was facing those challenges of physical injury, of mentally getting in a a really tough place and getting through it. Um, And that's with the help of the people around me and it's helped me build relationships for life. And one of the perspectives that we took into the Olympics was no matter what the end result, I've gained so much for myself from my friends, my family, I've built a new family and like became a better person. And these people will still essentially love me and they'll still be there and I'll still have this life outside of BMX, whether I win or lose the Olympics. And that was a huge part of the perspective that we took in. And it was something that like I kind of didn't consider until the last like few weeks working with, I worked with a psychologist at British Cycling and and he helped me like install that. And it was a good perspective. It was a great perspective to have. How does that perspective influence what you think you're going to do in the future? And just as a kind of little side question to that, because I'm not a okay with it. What's the kind of like longevity for somebody in BMX freestyle compared to, you know, in in football players get into their 30s and everyone's like, oh, they're very old. <laughs> and you think, really? <laughs> and then, you know, the oldest... Um, Grand Tour winner uh, was, go on, Anthony, tell me, Chris Horner, 41? Yeah, Vuelta, España, yeah. 
you're hitting if you're still going at 40. But what, what does your kind of um, future look like and how has it sort of changed with um, the, yeah, the, these reflections that you've been talking about? Um, well, as far as the age goes in, in BMX, it's quite interesting because it's obviously considered quite a young sport. Um, you'll be, I mean, say 18 to mid to late 20s is like the primary age. Uh, but most people don't really kind of make an impact before they're like late 20s. You don't really see the the regular winners under the age of like 27. So most of the really successful guys were consistently successful so far um, on, on the later end of the 20s and early 30s. The man that got silver in the men's Olympics was from Venezuela and he's 36 right now. Um, he's had a really long, prosperous career. And the perfect example is my coach, Jamie, who is, I don't know, he's superhuman somehow. He's, he was still riding vert and competing uh, in his late 40s. That is pushing it. Um, there's not many people that that do that. But as far as competing, you'd probably say from mid-20s to mid-30s is a good range. Most people maybe hang the bike up like late-30s kind of depends how well you look after your body and, and stuff like that. And the women's the women's side of things is a little different because it's so much newer. So it's quite a broad spectrum of, I'm one of the older in the women's. Um, there's a lot of young youngsters coming through, um, but it's not like an anomaly in BMX itself. Like the oldest in BMX is mid thirties, whereas the women's is such, is a newer side of the sport. If somebody wants to get into BMX, What's the way to get into it? What's the pathway? Because it seems a little bit more intimidating to get into than road cycling, you know, grab a road bike, meet your local club. You're kind of in the door. How do I get into BMX? Um, it's ironically, it's like less intimidating than than most places. I think there's no structure of having a local club or, or anything like that. I think you would just show up to your skate park with a bike, like your local skate park spot some BMXers and, and get chatting to them. Um, there's there's indoor skate parks, there's outdoor skate parks. The indoor, there's going to be session times. There might be a designated BMX session time. You could always ask. Just why it's such a social sport is you kind of got to show up and meet people, make friends, and then you kind of organize times to ride together. That That's like how you get into it. There's no form that you fill out or, or regular time that you show up. Right, well, does that mean, Anthony, you're going to be knocking on the door of your of your local, whatever whatever the Adrenaline Alley version is of over in Dublin, because that's where you are, isn't it, in Corby? Yeah. That's where it, your kind of base is. But do you think with where you're at, particularly with your involvement with British cycling and having seen, you know, from my perspective anyway, having seen the kind of movement of, um, of this is looking from the kind of flow from uh, track into road, but there's movement around disciplines in British cyclings cyclists uh, and someone like Shazni Reed, who uh, does BMX um, BMX cross, she came from track. Uh, lots of riders come from track. Do you think you could ever end up being pushed <laughs> by by the powers that be? Would you have an appetite for riding around in circles, judged by hundredths of a second, for example, or getting out into maybe like downhill mountain biking? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> not track. Uh, I think mentally, I just couldn't cope with like kind of destroy myself in the gym and like I've got all the respect in the world do not get me wrong I think it's amazing um what they do and they take some savage crashes themselves like they'll crash at 40 kilometers an hour um into some serious splinters uh but personally I, I just 
it just doesn't take my fancy. I need something with like an adrenaline rush, something that's creative. I've definitely seen a couple people cross from, yeah, as you say, like Sinead's who go from racing to track because it's similar with just the leg power. Um, but me personally, no, I, I don't. I'm very glad that I learned to ride a bike though, because it, it helped cross over with like a lot of other sports like skateboarding and when I was riding scooters, which is why like bikeability for Halfords is so important. Sure. I think what James was really trying to ask was, will you come gravel riding with me and him? (laughs) Charlotte, thank you very much for joining us on Cyclist Magazine podcast. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you for having me. James, what did you make of that? Charlotte's gone. She's off air. You can talk openly, freely and candidly, although she might listen back to it. So don't speak that openly. I wonder how many people do listen back to our podcast that have been on. Do you listen to yourself ever? No, because I'm six days a week on my podcast. So it's just, it'd be a full-time job. I will listen occasionally to, you know, like I had Fred Wright on and he was talking about the crash with Roglic. I'll listen to that little extract and go, oh, that was gold. <laughs> I'll only listen to him because, you know, when you listen back to your own voice, it's kind of a little bit weird sounding. You're like, oh, I'm not overly proud of how I sound. No, it's totally, I'd never listen to your own voice. It's taken me years of like transcribing to kind of come to terms, not like, but just come to terms with how I actually sound. Because you just sound totally different in your head because you've got all your bones and and that sort of uh, reverberating in a different way to how people can feel. Um, but anyway, what do I make of that? I think, A, she's absolutely smashing it and what a meteoric rise because it is only like five short years, six, you know, six years from being somebody who was just doing it for, you know, very, very good, but picked up by a few sponsors and ostensibly doing it in her spare time, um, had a day job, to doing it professionally and winning medals for us um, in, in, you know, in the inaugural uh, BMX freestyle, which is sick. But also, more than that, it kind of makes me want to go BMXing, really, because it just sounds a lot, it looks really fun, doesn't it? When they land tricks, anyway, it looks really good. I often wonder, like she mentioned, she worked full time in a kitchen. I've also shared that occupation for a year. And it's tough work. It's stressful work. It's pressure filled and it's very full on manual. I often wonder, do you take attributes or lessons from those jobs into high performance sport? Absolutely. I, I, I say this, Anthony, as a, uh, as a qualified chef. Actually, I don't know if I've ever told you that. Interesting. I, I have a that. I have a GNVQ2 in catering and I cooked, cooked, chefed, whatever, uh, badly for a number of years. Anyway, no, I was a rubbish chef, but I've met chefs. I'm interested in chefs. Um, Michel Rougeunier, for example, who does MasterChef. I don't know if you get that over there. He is a really good age group triathlete. Tom Aitkins, who was a kind of enfant terrible, Britain's youngest Michelin-starred chef at one point at a restaurant in London, uh, Terre Terre, famously branded one of his um, commie chefs with a pallet knife that he'd heated up in the gas ring because <laughs> they had systematically messed up the same thing and he was just having none of it. And so that got him uh, a lot of headlines and then he got kicked out. He lost his um, head chefship at this restaurant. Anyway, I met him on a press trip and he had just done the uh, Marathon de Saab, you know, the one through the desert. Yeah. And it's like there is something between chefing and, you know, it's an extreme sport in of itself because it's basically highly repetitive you've got to be really dedicated to be good at it because you can be okay but if you want to get really good you just have to just put all of the hours in and sacrifice yourself to it and you just got to be tremendously single-minded so yes i think for sure there is a link i remember a couple of months ago someone sent me a message saying oh you know the podcast six days a week that's hard work and i've had jobs that are hard work you know i've worked on construction sites six days a week in the rain in ireland 
lifting bricks and filling up skips and mixing for plasters. Like that's hard work. Sitting down and podcasting for 60 minutes a day, like it's, that's no hard work. There's no way you could frame that as hard work. But I am struck by that saying of like, the hardest, worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. It's a very subjective experience. If, you know, podcasting and talking, having a 60 minute conversation once a day is the hardest thing you've ever encountered. It's subjective to you. It is the hardest thing that you've ever encountered. It's true. Yeah. Everything kind of, well, everything only exists in in context. Although I'd still say that it's like, you know, you can say that all music has value if you like that genre. But objectively, we know that some music is shit. And so I think objectively, we know that I know what you're saying, but it is just way easier sitting in a nice warm room uh, with your headphones on than it is, yeah, shoveling cement <laughs> into a bucket and mixing it with a probably, I don't know, how was the building site? Was it like you as a young, young bloke with a bunch of like grizzled old guys just giving you shit all the time? Yeah, you want to talk about inclusivity in BMXing? There's not a lot of inclusivity going on down the building site. It is a 100% middle-aged man, tattooed, smoking, spitting, drinking culture over here in Ireland. It is a weird one. I, t- I, had, I had a similar job. We'll end on this pretty soon because this is not a chat about mine and Anthony's uh, previous occupations. <laughs> I, did, uh, I did landscape gardening for a summer um, as a kid. And that was both one of the best hardest and weirdest and easiest jobs I ever did because it was just those blokes you described there was uh yeah a lot of really really bad tattoos um a lot of saggy leathery man skin in the sunshine a lot of fag smoking but also weirdly just like a lot of right no one really knows what we're doing so uh let's just I was buddied up with this guy and he'd just go around to his house after having picked up the van pick up his fishing rods and then we'd go and drive down the seafront with the uh, the orange flashes on, which meant you could do anything, basically, and drive onto the beach and then just fish all day. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm 17, so yeah, if that's what we want, want to do, Mark. But it was such a weird eye-opener to the world of work. Because then other days, yeah, it'd just be absolutely hacking it down with rain and you'd be chopping these hedges. and mo- it was, Yeah, it was really extreme. I hadn't realised you were such a domestic catch for your missus. He's a chef, he's a landscape gardener. We're going to leave it there, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to another week of Cyclist Magazine podcast. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ.